Harry Ironside was a wonderful Bible teacher, very well-known Bible teacher. He was also the pastor at the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago for many, many years. Dr. Ironside once told the story of a man who was asked at a public meeting to give his testimony about coming to faith in Christ. So the man told them all that the Lord had done in his life to bring him to faith. He testified how God had sought him and found him and loved him, how God had called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. It was just a great testimony that gave glory to God for his grace and his power in bringing this man to faith in Christ. But after the meeting was over, someone took the man aside, the man who had just given witness to all that God had done for him, and criticized his testimony. Telling the man this, he said, I appreciated all you said, that you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in salvation. Salvation, he said, is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh yes, the man who had given his testimony said, I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away, and his part was running after me until he caught me. That's his testimony. Now, without identifying the theological camp that this man belonged to, it would appear that the man who gave his testimony was a Calvinist. And I say that because uh, only a Calvinist would stress that salvation was from the Lord from beginning to end. It was all of him and that the unconverted are totally disinterested in Christ and are running away from him and continue to run from him until God intervenes and interrupts their lives and supernaturally brings them to faith in his son. And that's precisely what we've been discovering in our present series on the doctrines of grace given on the Sundays when we observe the Lord's Supper, which we are doing today. To do this, we have been examining the various points, the various tenets of the, that theological system known as Calvinism. Now, as, as you know, because I've stressed this, that Calvinism consists of five specific points. And though each point focuses on a distinct biblical truth concerning salvation, they're all related to each other with each point actually flowing naturally from one to the other so that when we put them all together, we stand in utter amazement as we behold God's remarkable grace in devising such an incredibly coherent and absolutely brilliant plan to save lost sinners like us. Now, following the acrostic tulip, We've already seen the first four points of Calvinism with the opening one being, and this is foundational, total depravity, which asserts the biblical truth that all people have been corrupted by sin in every part of their being, with the result being that they are spiritually dead and have become slaves to their own sin, which in practical terms means that they are totally unresponsive to God. They have absolutely no desire, no interest to come to Christ because they are spiritually just dead. And so they're not interested in having a relationship with the Lord Jesus. They love their sin and they only want to continue in their sin. And so this man who gave his testimony was absolutely correct. And he really spoke for all of us when he testified that he was indeed running away from God. Because at one point, folks, we were all running 
away from God. And if God had not interrupted, if God had not intervened in our lives and had continued to let us run from him, we would have run smack into hell upon death. And that's why the doctrine of total depravity naturally leads to the second point of Calvinism known as unconditional election, which states that instead of letting us all perish in hell, instead of letting us all run into hell, which is what we deserve for certain, God in his mercy sovereignly chose some people from amongst the mass of lost humanity to be saved without revealing to us why he decided to choose this person and not that person. God has, though, revealed that he has chosen and predestined some to salvation according to his own purpose and after the counsel of his own will. In other words, he solely, and I emphasize the word solely, determined who would be saved. He didn't choose anyone because he looked down the corridors of time and saw who would first choose him. He sovereignly made the choice independent of anything or anyone else. The Apostle Paul made this abundantly clear when in presenting the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, Paul defends God's sovereign choice by quoting God's words to Moses from the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus 33:19, which says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Romans 9, 15. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, adds his own words of explanation so that no one could miss the point he was making about sovereign election. Paul said, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, election is solely dependent upon the mercy of God in choosing who he will save. And nothing else. God decides who he will be merciful to, not man. So election is exclusively the sovereign choice of God and is not determined one iota by man. Now, unconditional election, it's just an amazing biblical truth about God's grace and mercy because it tells us that out of his heart of love, God decided to rescue those he has chosen from the lost and hopeless condition of being enslaved and dead sinners. It's totally his mercy. But note this, the truth of election, of unconditional election, does not actually save or rescue anyone. It only guarantees, it only guarantees the fact that salvation will eventually be experienced by every elect individual. For God to actually save us experientially, there had to be a payment for all the sins of all the elect. But not just any payment, there had to be a perfect substitute who would pay the price of sin being punished, being judged in the place of the elect. One who was human yet sinless so that he had no sins of his own that needed to be paid for and one who was eternal so that his punishment would be of an eternal, everlasting, never-ending value. And that's why the second point of Calvinism naturally segues into the third point which is called limited atonement. 
Now this is the teaching that says that when Christ died on the cross, he the perfect substitute, because he was both sinless man and the eternal God, was paying or atoning for all the sins of all the elect. It's called limited atonement only because his sacrifice was limited to the elect and not because there's anything deficient or lacking in it. Jesus himself spoke of his death in a, in a limited sense when he said in John chapter 10 that he was the good shepherd who would lay down his life. He didn't say for everybody, he said for his sheep. In other words, he restricted his sacrifice to those who were his sheep in contrast to all others who were not his sheep, meaning the non-elect. So when Jesus died, I want you to know it was not a potential salvation. It was not a potential atonement if you simply believe. It was a real and effective atonement. It was a real and effective redemption. It was a real and effective payment for the sins of his people that would result in delivering the elect from being punished in hell. But here's the problem. No spiritually dead sinner could ever experience salvation and appropriate by faith Christ's sacrifice on their behalf unless, unless God first opened their dead hearts and gave them spiritual life. And that's precisely why the doctrine of limited atonement leads to the fourth point of Calvinism, which is known as irresistible grace, which was the focus of our study last month when we observed the Lord's Supper, and it is the focus of our study today as we observe the Lord's Supper. And what we discovered about irresistible grace last month is that this is the teaching that explains how God brings dead sinners, spiritually dead sinners to Christ for salvation, who up to this point in their lives have absolutely no interest in coming to him for salvation. You see, the doctrine of irresistible grace tells us that when God calls one of his elect to Christ for salvation, it is always a successful and it is always an effective call because that person cannot and that person will not resist this call and thus the name irresistible grace. Now last month in answering the question what is the meaning of irresistible grace we spent most of our time explaining the difference between what theologians refer to as the general call to salvation that goes out to just everybody who hears the gospel and the special call sometimes called the specific call, sometimes called the effective call to salvation that goes out only to the elect. So I remind you that the general call is simply an outward call that everyone hears when they hear the gospel message. And it is always resisted because everyone who hears this call is dead, dead in their sins and trespasses, and they will remain dead in their sins and trespasses unless God chooses to awaken them by giving them spiritual life. And so this general call is always resisted. However, the special call, that's different. Because although it incorporates the general call in that it is the gospel message that goes out to sinners, there is a special aspect to this call. See, this call is directed only at someone who is elect. And therefore, there is a specific inward, internal call to that individual from the Holy Spirit to come to Christ. And they come. 
They come because this call is always responded to positively and it is never resisted, it is never rejected. So, what began in the heart and in the mind of God in eternity past as he mapped out the plan of salvation and the choosing of the elect, now with irresistible grace, it begins to come into focus. It begins to come into effect as the elect are awakened to their need for Christ as Savior. You see, this call, as James Montgomery Boyce put it, and I quote, this call is the point at which the eternal foreknowledge and predestination of God pass over into time and start the process by which the individual is drawn from sin to faith in Christ is justified through that faith and is then kept in Christ until his or her final glorification. But listen, it all begins. It all begins right here with this irresistible call going out that cannot and will not be rejected. And the reason it is never rejected is because when this special call goes out to one whom God has chosen to be saved, the Holy Spirit at that moment creates and implants within the sinner a new heart by giving him spiritual life. This is what it means to be born again. In other words, he causes this person to be born from above, from heaven, born again. He regenerates him so that now this individual who was previously dead and enslaved to his sin, he now becomes alive spiritually. He now has a new nature and his new nature desires salvation in Christ. So he immediately repents of his sin and places his trust in Christ for salvation. This is precisely what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 2.13. He said, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Folks, this is how the Lord This is how he conquers our stubborn and rebellious hearts. This is how he brings those who were once dead in their sins and wanted nothing to do with him, how he brings us to salvation. He does this by regenerating us, by giving us new life, by imparting to us a new divine nature. And so note this, when we do come to Christ for salvation, we come willingly We come willingly. He's changed our wills. Not kicking, not screaming, not feeling like we've been forced to submit to him against our wills. No. Charles Spurgeon explained it this way. He said, a man is not saved against his will, but he is made willing by the operation of the Holy Spirit. A mighty grace which he does not wish to resist enters into the man, disarms him, makes makes a new creature of him, and he's saved. When he first came to me, did I not spurn him? When he knocked at the door and asked for entrance, did I not drive him away? I can remember that I full often did so until at last, by the power of his effectual grace, he said, I must, I will come in. And then he turned my heart and made me love him. And folks, this is the way it is with every one of us who comes to Christ at the precise moment that God has chosen to save you, he supernaturally turned your heart to him by regenerating you. You didn't know it at the moment, but that's what he did. And then you willingly placed 
your faith in Christ. And from that point on, you have loved him and no longer hated him. And because you now love him, you long to obey him. You no longer resist him, even though we still, all of us, still struggle daily with our sin. But our hearts have been surrendered to him. We're not resisting him. It's not our lifestyle anymore. This is precisely what it means to be a new creature in Christ. And it comes about as God calls us to himself and makes his grace irresistible so that we no longer resist it as we once did. So I ask you, has this been your experience? Has your heart been turned towards Christ? Is your stubborn resistance, has it been subdued? Have you yielded to him? Do you now long to obey him, which means obeying his word? You see, obedience is the mark of everyone who's been regenerated. We're not talking about perfection. I always emphasize that. Nobody but Christ is perfect. But we are talking about a general direction of life, a desire to obey him, a lifestyle of obedience. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They follow me. So I say in the words of Peter, make your calling and election sure. Make it certain by examining yourself to determine if you have the evidence of regeneration, which is the desire to obey God's word. So this is what Calvinists mean by the term irresistible grace. But the question we now face is this, is this doctrine known as irresistible grace, is it actually found in scripture? Is this teaching about a divine calling that can't be refused, is it supported by the Bible? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning as we move on to ask a second question. The first one was, what is meant by the term irresistible grace? We now ask, is the doctrine of irresistible grace, is it taught in the Bible? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes, yes. Irresistible grace is taught in the Bible and it's taught very clearly and it's taught quite often. It's not an isolated text here and there. As I told you last month, you'll not find the term irresistible grace in the Bible, but you'll find its truth all throughout the New Testament. Every time we read in the Bible about believers in Christ being called to salvation, it is a reference to this special internal call by the Holy Spirit that can't be resisted. How do we know that? Because if you're writing as the apostles did to those who are called, they're already believers. So they didn't refuse this call. Obviously, it wasn't resisted because these people came to Christ and they're now saved. So for example, we read these words by Paul in Romans chapter one, verses six and seven. Among whom you are also the called of Christ Jesus to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints. Now these Roman believers, they didn't come to Christ on their own initiative. Paul specifically says they were called by God to come to Christ. So that they're even referred to as the called of Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul said, God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so 
that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. We've been called. Peter said the same thing, 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Now, as you can see, in each of these verses, and I really could have read a lot more, but in each of these verses, we're told that those who had already come to faith in Christ, those who were saved, had come because they were called into the fellowship of his son, of Christ. This was an effective call. It was an effective call by the Holy Spirit that successfully brought them into the kingdom of Christ. But while these verses, all of them, declare that believers are those who are called, there are several other verses that explain what is involved in this irresistible calling. For example, Jesus said these very important words in John 6, 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now this is a statement that Jesus made to his disciples to explain why some people believe in him and others don't. The Lord, notice, starts off by saying that no one can come to him for salvation. Now let's stop there. It's important to understand what Jesus doesn't mean by these words. He doesn't mean no one is allowed to come to him as if some might want to come, but he just prevents them from coming. He doesn't permit them to come, but they want to. No, that's not at all what the Lord meant. Remember, Paul said in Romans 3 that no man seeks after God. No man at all seeks after God. No one wants to come to Christ because we're all dead in our sins when we're born into this world and we that's our orientation of life. We're all dead in our sins. No, what Jesus means by these words, no one can come to me, is that no one is able to come to me. In other words, no one has the moral capacity. No one has the spiritual ability. No one has the internal power to come to me for salvation. Folks, this is precisely why Calvinism begins with that foundational doctrine of total depravity. It is the foundational point of all the other points that follow. Miss that and you've missed it all. Because total depravity explains why salvation must be initiated by God and it is the work of God rather than the work of man. It explains that man is incapable in and of himself of coming to Christ to be saved, to be rescued. And therefore, if he is to be saved from sin, it must be due to the fact that God chose him, died for his sins, and effectively called him to salvation. And it is this special, this this effective call to salvation that Jesus explained in this statement here in John 6, 65, when he went on to say what's most important, no one can come to me unless... It has been granted him from the Father. Unless it's been granted him from the Father. What an incredible statement our Lord made. Because he's telling us that the only way an individual can ever come to him for salvation, if it has been granted, this individual has been granted the ability by God the Father to come to Christ. So how does this work? How does God the Father grant people the ability which they don't have in and of themselves to come to Christ. Well, 
earlier in this chapter, John chapter 6, Jesus had addressed this very issue of how the Father does bring individuals to himself. So let me point you to a very significant scripture verse, John 6, 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now, the key word in this statement is the word draw. Jesus said that no one has the ability to come to him for salvation unless the Father draws him. That is to say, the only way someone can ever come to Christ is to be drawn to him by the Father. So then, this becomes a very, very significant statement because Jesus says right here that there's absolutely no way that anyone can come to him for salvation unless he's drawn to him by the Father. So, the question is, what does he mean? What does, he, what does it mean to be drawn to Christ? Well, those who reject Calvinism, they would say that this drawing is God encouraging someone to come to Christ, but that this encouragement, they would say, can be resisted. In other words, they would explain this drawing by God with words such as, he entices people to come to Christ, or he woos them to come to Christ, or he tries to persuade them to come, but there's no guarantee that anyone will actually come even when the Father draws them. Now, that's what a non-Calvinist would say. But let me tell you why this view is wrong, and I, I say it dogmatically, it's wrong. And I say it's wrong because the Greek word that is translated draw does not mean to entice or to woo or to encourage, or to try to persuade. All, and I repeat, all credible authorities in New Testament Greek tell us that this word for draw means to compel by irresistible superiority. To compel by irresistible superiority. In other words, the thought behind this word is compelling force. It's the same word used in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, to speak of Paul and Silas being dragged by a mob, compelling force. In James 2.6, it's the same word where we read about rich men dragging poor people into court. Listen, here's the point that Jesus is making in John 6.44. He's telling us that the only way someone, the only way someone's resistance in coming to him will ever be overcome is when the Father intervenes in that person's life by drawing them to him, which is as forceful as dragging them, though he doesn't do this by coercing anyone against their will, but rather he does this by changing their hearts so that they want to come, so that they willingly do come. Folks, this is precisely the essence of irresistible grace, and Jesus clearly taught it. Now, another verse of scripture that mentions the concept of irresistible grace is Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Luke tells us, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, this is in the city of Philippi, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now here we read that as the Apostle Paul was speaking to a group of women 
about the Lord, God opened the heart of one of those women by the name of Lydia so that she responded to the truth about Christ. Being spiritually dead, being a depraved sinner, Lydia did not have the ability to open her own heart to the gospel, so God did it for her. And that's why she was responsive to what the Apostle Paul was saying about Jesus. Now note this, from Paul's perspective, from the Apostle's perspective, God was using him to give a general call of salvation to this group of women as he told them about Christ, just like he did with everyone when he shared the gospel with them. But unbeknownst to Paul, at the same time this general call went out to all of these women, this irresistible special call of salvation was being issued by the Holy Spirit to Lydia as the Spirit was opening her heart to Christ. And that's exactly how it works when we evangelize, when we witness to someone We give the general call to all as we bear witness of Christ, as we share the gospel with them, as we obey the Great Commission. But if we are speaking to one of God's elect that he's about to draw to Christ, even though we have no idea that this person is elect, we don't know who the elect might be and who they aren't. But if we're speaking to one of the elect, unbeknownst to us, God will give them his irresistible special call so that they will come to him for salvation. So our responsibility is what? Just to be faithful. Be faithful in sharing the the gospel and trust God that by his power and not by our cleverness or our skill in evangelizing, he will use our witness to draw the elect to Christ and open their hearts to the gospel at the time that he sees fit. Now, I mentioned to you last month that the doctrine of irresistible grace is a very practical doctrine with a number of important implications. And one of those important implications has to do with the way that some Christians tend to evangelize. And I'm specifically referring to the issue of what's commonly referred to as altar calls, which are used by some evangelical leaders to try to bring people to Christ. Now, by altar calls, I'm talking about what many preachers, especially but not limited to Baptist preachers, do at the close of their sermons when they appeal to people to make a decision to receive Christ by walking down the aisle of the church and coming to the front of the auditorium. These altar calls are often accompanied by the singing of music and by the dimming of lights in the building. Now, it may interest you to know that this concept of an altar call is a relatively modern invention. It is never mentioned in the Bible, either Old or New Testament, as a device to be used or that was used in evangelizing to encourage people to make a decision for Christ. It is a new invention. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book Preaching and Preachers, explains the origin of the altar call. He writes, so many do not seem to be aware of the fact that all of this, like so many other things, only came into the life of the church during the last century. He means the 1800s. It came in fairly early in that century, actually in the 20s, and it came in with Charles G. Finney. It was he who introduced the anxious seat, this new measure which called on people to make a decision then and there. It was an essential part of his method and his thinking, and it led to great controversy at the time. Now, Charles G. Finney was certainly not a Calvinist, and so his, his theology naturally led him to think that he could somehow exert some influence 
on people's wills that would encourage them to make a decision for Christ. And to do this, he came up with the anxious seat. So what do we say to this? Well, we say it's certainly not wrong to invite people to receive Christ. Jesus himself offered an invitation to receive him when he said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. That was an invitation to salvation. So it's certainly not wrong to do that. However, an altar call is not simply an invitation to receive Christ. It is the belief that somehow you can induce people to receive Christ if you create the right favorable conditions, the right environment, the right atmosphere. So along with this call to come forward, as I just mentioned, sometimes there's a hymn being sung of many, many verses, and then lights are being dimmed, counselors are coming forward, thinking that all of this will help persuade people in the audience to make a decision for Christ. Now, there are many dangers inherent in the system of altar calls. For one thing, it tends to give people the impression that this act of going forward actually saves them, or that this is the only way they could be saved. Listen, sadly, more than sadly, tragically, there are many people today who think that they're saved merely because they walked an aisle in a church service Though they have no real understanding of the gospel and there's no evidence that they've ever been saved, and yet they base their whole assurance of salvation on the fact that they went forward in church. And if you speak to them, that's what they'll say. Oh, I did that. I went forward in church service. And there are other people who think that salvation can only occur if they walk an aisle. I'm aware of a pastor who was told by someone in his congregation, this person said, I was ready to make a decision for Christ on the previous Sunday If only you had given some kind of a special invitation during the service. A day or so later, this man said to the pastor, he wasn't interested in making a decision for Christ because he said the time had passed and so he was no longer interested and he blamed the pastor for this. You see, the problem was that this man was equating salvation with a desire to go forward in an altar call type of situation. And since... He no longer had this desire. Then he felt it was the pastor's fault that he wasn't saved because the pastor had not given an altar call the previous Sunday. How absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. If the Holy Spirit had really brought this man under conviction of his sin and had the Father been drawing him to Christ, he would certainly have come to Christ regardless of whether or not his pastor had extended an altar call in church. But altar calls are also a problem because they tend to become ego trips for pastors who think that their success in the ministry is based upon how many people they can get to come forward in their church services. So it becomes really a very carnal numbers game. But I want you to know that the primary problem with altar calls is that it completely bypasses the biblical teaching that salvation is solely the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an individual as he and he alone brings about regeneration. And it distracts us from the truth that the power of salvation is God himself and not some man-made invention and device. See, the Lord doesn't need our help through altar calls or any other human device or evangelistic gimmickry to accomplish his work of regenerating. Anyone doesn't need us. No one can be manipulated into the kingdom of God. 
Salvation is the work of the Spirit of God in an individual's life. And no one can reduce evangelism to human creativity as if introducing someone to Jesus is the same as making a sales presentation to convince someone to buy the product you're selling. It's not like that at all. Again, I remind you that people are dead in their sins so that they cannot accept Christ apart from the Holy Spirit drawing them to him by regenerating them. Dr. Lloyd-Jones also said this concerning the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing someone to salvation. He said the true work of conviction of sin and regeneration and the giving of the gift of faith and new life is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. It is his work. It is always a thorough work. And it is always a work that will show itself. It always has done so. You see it in the most dramatic form on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Even while Peter was preaching, people cried out under conviction of sin, men and brethren, they said, what shall we do? Peter was preaching in the power of the Spirit. He was expounding the scriptures and applying it. He did not employ any techniques. So, we've looked at the meaning of irresistible grace. We've addressed the question of is there biblical support for it? And now a third question we quickly want to ask and and answer. And that is, what are the main objections to irresistible grace? Well, there's really only one objection. The primary objection people always seem to have with the doctrine of irresistible grace is that they feel it violates man's free will. That's always what you'll hear. Well, it violates my free will. Those who think this way will often say things like, and now I'm I'm actually quoting from a man who does believe this. They'll say something like, well, true love is persuasive, but never coercive. There can be no shotgun weddings in heaven. True love never forces itself on anyone. But those who hold to this objection of irresistible grace, they make the wrong assumption. They make the assumption that man has a free will and therefore he has the moral ability to choose Christ. But he doesn't have a free will. His will is not free. Unsaved man is in bondage. He's enslaved to his sin. That's why Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Unsaved man can make decisions He's not a robot, but it's decisions only in the realm of his sinfulness. He's controlled by his sin nature. His will isn't free. The will obeys the nature. His will is in bondage to his sin, and he is dead in sin. He does not have a free will. Only when you come to faith in Christ do you have a free will. Only a believer can say, I choose to disobey or I choose to obey. An unbeliever can't choose to obey. Everything is disobedience one way or another. Listen, the truth of the matter is that God does force us to love him. He does. He's got to force us to love him or we would never love him and never come to him to be saved. This irresistible force is part of his amazing grace. But the important thing for us to understand is that in exerting his irresistible grace upon us, God doesn't make us love or believe in him against our will. He simply makes us willing to believe and love him. As someone has so wonderfully put it, they said, God loves his elect too much to leave them in their sins. He forcibly and lovingly rescues them. 
So I ask, have you ever been rescued? Have you ever been rescued by Jesus Christ? He's willing to do that. He's willing to rescue you. He's willing to save you from the penalty of your sin if you'll just do this, if you'll just repent. If you'll repent of your sin and trust him as Lord and Savior, that's all. That's a big all, but that's all. Jesus died for sinners. So if you know that you're a sinner, then I urge you, come to him. Come today to him for salvation. And if you've already trusted him, then it's time for you to give God praise for drawing you to Christ. Now that you know more about irresistible grace, you need to praise him and adore him. Because if he hadn't drawn you, you would never have come. That's the bottom line. But he has drawn you because he chose to set his love upon you. So let that sink in and adore him for his remarkable grace. And God has provided a very special time for us to adore him and praise him as a congregation, and that is the Lord's Supper. I mean, you should adore and praise him privately, but together we come to observe the Lord's Supper, which Jesus commands us to observe as a remembrance of him and his death on the cross. And so the Lord, we read, said these words through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, your, your blood is called in the word of God precious, as of a lamb, unspotted, blameless. And indeed, your blood is that because you're the unspotted one. You're the blameless one. You're the perfect one. And we thank you that your blood not only it doesn't cover our sins, it, it takes it away. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Lord, we have been forgiven of our sins. We'll never face judgment. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far you have removed our sins from us. Never to come into judgment, ever. So thank you for that, Lord. From the bottom of our hearts, we praise and adore you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.